Getting ready to take on spring? Make your first move with the reliable performance and power of steel tools. From hedge trimmers and mowers to string trimmers and more, right now you can save $20 on the steel MS-162 or MS-170 chainsaw. Real steel. Offer valid through June 30th, 2024. See participating retailer for details. Getting ready to take on spring? Make your first move with the reliable performance and power of steel tools. From hedge trimmers and mowers to string trimmers and more, right now save $30 on the American-made steel FS56 RCE trimmer. Real steel. The FS56 RCE is made in America of U.S. and global materials. Offer valid through June 16, 2024. See participating retailer for details. Dan Campbell trying to pull off one of the most incredible transformations. The Lions have never played in a Super Bowl. They're 60 minutes away from, from that. Welcome into the NFL on Fox podcast presented by Verizon. I'm Dave Hellman and welcome to conference championship weekend. One game left on each side of the playoff bracket to determine who meets in Super Bowl 58 in Las Vegas in just a couple weeks. If you're a football fan, you're on the edge of your seat with anticipation for a full Sunday. If you are a fan of the Niners, Lions, Ravens, Chiefs, you are probably an anxious wreck. Either way, we will help you through it. We got the goods on both games. If that wasn't enough, the hiring cycle continues. A new head coach named on Thursday. We'll get to that. It's it's that time of year. You want to be up to date with the NFL news, please give us a follow on Spotify. Check us out on Apple Podcasts, wherever you get your podcasts. If you're more of a YouTube kind of person, Put the clip on, maybe let it run while you're doing some work. Please go find us on YouTube, wherever you get your podcasts and your news. There's a hiring, there's a coaching change every other day, and obviously the stakes get higher and higher all the way up to the Super Bowl. Please stick with us throughout the rest of the season. We would appreciate it. We'll jump into the games in a sec, but yes, it's Dave Canales, Tampa Bay Offensive Coordinator getting hired by the Carolina Panthers on Thursday morning. Five of the eight NFL head coaching vacancies are filled. Jim Harbaugh goes to the Chargers earlier this week. The Raiders hire Antonio Pierce. For the Patriots, it's Gerard Mayo. Tennessee Titans with Brian Callahan. And now the Panthers with Dave Canales. Seattle, Washington, Atlanta, all still looking for head coaches. If I had to guess, one of those jobs will be filled by the time we know the Super Bowl matchup. I actually had a chance. It's fitting. We were going to talk to our buddy Greg Allman about the AFC championship game later in the show anyway. He also covers the NFC South, so we're going to do a deep dive on what the Canales hire means for Carolina later on. But right now, let's get to our Fox game, the NFC championship Sunday night in Santa Clara, California. The San Francisco 49ers playing host to the Detroit Lions in a game with storylines that I... Can't quite wrap my head around. It's it's absolutely rife with them. One of the most talent-loaded rosters we've seen in recent memory, San Francisco 49ers, seems like an all-pro at every position on the field. 
except the quarterback, ironically, who was the last pick in the NFL draft. Can't make it up. Five Lombardi trophies. Championship pedigree galore, except it's been 29 years since the 49ers have won a championship. It's a it's a drought that flies under the radar a little bit. Obviously, the 49ers have enjoyed plenty of success here over the last 10, 15 years. It has not resulted in a championship. 0-2 in their last two trips to the Super Bowl. They would love to rectify that. Who would love to rectify it more than the tactician himself, Kyle Shanahan, the architect of this whole thing, had a lead in the Super Bowl just four years ago. Had a huge lead as an offensive coordinator with Atlanta in the Super Bowl back in 2016. Trying desperately to get over the hump with easily his most talented roster. On the other side, not NFL royalty. The Detroit Lions say, 1994, 29 years since your last championship? Kiss our ass. Try 66. Try 1957. Since the last time the Detroit Lions won a championship, the Super Bowl wasn't even a thought. They've been a laughing stock for the vast majority of that time. Only the second time they've played in the conference title game in the Super Bowl era. It's the rarest of rare air. A talented team in their own right. There's seven combined all pros in this game. Their quarterback, a former number one overall pick, Jared Goff, an all pro receiver in Amon Ross St. Brown. How about the hometown dude, Aiden Hutchinson? As if it wasn't good enough that he's one of the best pass rushers in the league for the Lions. He's from the Detroit area, went to school at Michigan. You think he wants to deliver a win for the fans that haven't seen this type of success in 30, 40, 50, 60 years? Yeah, sounds pretty fun. And then on the other side of it, a guy that looks like the polar opposite of Kyle Shanahan in Dan Campbell, the kneecap biter himself, but who's actually on the cutting edge of all of the analytical decision-making that gets talked about so much in the NFL today. We'll get into that in a minute. It, like I said, you could go on and on and on. A have versus a have not. A, a team trying to recapture its former glory, the Niners finally getting back on top of the league versus a team that's trying to establish itself, a fan base that's been waiting longer than just about anybody. Cleveland fans might take issue with that, but you get my point. So many star players. It's going to be phenomenal. And who better to talk me through it than the guy we've been talking to all year. We've talked to Greg Olson every Friday of the season, but this one bears special meaning, the NFC Championship, talking all things 49ers, Lions, the matchups to know, the storylines to watch, the decisions to watch as the Niners host the Lions. Check it out. All right, Greg, NFC Championship, Detroit Lions at San Francisco 49ers. Been waiting a long time for this one. I'll I'll start here as we're recording I'm going to guess Debo Samuel plays in this game, but we don't officially know. But I'm just curious, from your experience playing this game, how does it change, you know, losing a player of Debo's caliber mid-game and how that affects your game plan? How does that change now when you move forward and you're trying to game plan for the Lions where you're not 100% sure of his availability? Yeah, so I think it's twofold. I think just generally speaking, anytime you lose one of your best players, you're going to feel it in some capacity, right? I know in the NFL, everyone's gotten so accustomed to just hearing, you know, next man up and you just put the next guy in. And while that's true and you have no choice, you have to move forward. 
very rarely is the next guy up as good as the guy he's replacing, especially somebody like Debo Samuel, right? You just, you're not going to get a player that has the versatility and the comfort of, of being moved around and kind of fitting into the Shanahan offense, the way he's built it. So that's the first part of it. Secondly, I think it's even more highlighted when it happens midstream, you know, it's in the middle of the game and everything we've worked on for two weeks, every good concept, every good play, Debo Samuel's either a primary or a secondary component to what makes that play favorable and why Kyle Shanahan has it in the game plan and something that it wants to set up for later. And it's all kind of interconnected. So all of a sudden you take out one of those pieces. It's like taking out a piece of a puzzle. Like you could still get the idea of what the puzzle is going to look like and all that, but it's, it's not the same. It's not completed. And I think that's what happened a little bit last week um, against green Bay. I, I just think, you know, a lot of what they probably felt good about and a lot of what, you know, that both, the primary role of like getting him the ball, but then also what he does to create space on the field with some of their formations and movements and formation variability, what that does to open up McCaffrey and, and, and Kittle and Ayuk. And it, it's all, he impacts the game when he doesn't just have the ball. So now all of a sudden you got other people in there and I'll be honest, I thought Juwan Jennings did a really nice job. He made some big catches and, and, and probably had his most impact on a consistent basis. So you are going to get guys to step up. It's just, it's in a different fashion. They're different style players. This week, they'll probably have two plans. Like, okay, if he goes and maybe it's in a limited capacity or whatever it is, if he's in the game, we know we can draw from this menu. And then, but we also have all week to plan that if he doesn't play, everybody else knows exactly where they're going to be and what roles they have. So it's a little bit easier preparing for a game in advance of a player being out than it happening in the moment. And there's more that goes into it than just this, but I think it's it's a talking point for a reason because when Debo was hurt earlier in the year, it, it contributed to a three-game losing streak. With that knowledge in the back of their mind, how do you think the, the 49ers game plan for this if if he can't go? And like I said, I think he will, but I do think that's a huge variable. Yeah, so I, I think in general, you know, Debo playing or, or not playing – I think their style of play would be very interesting. And, and we haven't, as of recording this, we haven't spoken to San Francisco and, you know, this is all just off of our own prep and kind of digging in. It's it's pretty clear what Detroit's defense does really well. They are very good stopping the run. They overcommit to it. They're good at, you know, they're even better at it versus like nickel personnel where you'd imagine when they are in base personnel and they got more big bodies, more linebackers and defensive linemen on the field. But Brian Branch is one of the best rookies in the league. I mean, he's been a really good player, plays in that nickel spot, and he's a good run defender. So between him and Anzalone and, and Campbell and, and Derek Barnes, and then obviously the guys up front. So they, they make it a point to stop the run. So if I'm if I'm Kyle Shanahan, and, and obviously I'm not, but if I was, I'm really comfortable throwing the ball. The weather is going to be better. It's going to be warm. It's going to be dry. Brock Purdy has earned my trust over the years that in those conditions, he's as efficient and good with the ball as anybody. And I think I'm really going to test this Detroit secondary. That The past defense of Detroit is the scary part. I think that's where they've had some limitations all year. And um, they seem to make opportunistic plays, like the two picks last, last week. But in general, their efficiency numbers and whatnot just aren't as strong against the pass as they are against the run. So I know Shanahan doesn't want to be taken out of his run game. I know he takes pride in running it against heavy boxes and and good rush defenses, but I think there is an element to, Hey, if there is a weakness and there is something that you do well, that can go against the defense. The more you sprinkle of that in the, the more things tip into your favor and then see how the game unfolds. 
I enjoyed the way Detroit, uh, the wrinkle, I guess they threw in the way they approached that Buccaneers game. It seemed like Aaron Glenn sent a lot of DBs at Baker Mayfield and I kind of steering into the skid, right? Like, well, if we don't cover that well, we might as well send some of these guys at the quarterback. But I I don't know if I buy that they can get away with that in this game. I mean, do they do they just keep that rolling, or or, or do you have to come up with a, an entirely different approach? I think it depends what style Shanahan Kyle Shanahan plays from. I I think it's a little bit easier to blitz when a quarterback's in the gun. You know, they brought a lot of nickel pressure, so like the guy who's guarding the number two receiver in the slot, he came off the edge probably four or five times alone, plus some of the other combination pressures that. Aaron Glenn dialed up last week against Tampa. So I think the biggest thing is if they're going to sit Purdy back there in the shotgun, especially in some passing situations, they probably feel a little bit more comfortable now with what they can build shell wise that they can get after him and, and try to pressure him. The thing about Purdy though, is he's excellent under pressure. He's excellent versus the blitz. He's excellent under center. He's excellent in the gun. Like all of his efficiency numbers, he's not one of those quarterbacks where it's like, Hey, if we can muddy the pocket, he plummets. Hey, he's better under center, but if we can get him to play out of the gun, his numbers plummet. They don't. So I, I think Aaron Glenn's got an interesting decision to make in how he wants to play Shanahan. Um, everything with Shanahan and forty and the 49ers is you got to stop. Everything they do is explosive plays, right? You even think of the run game last week of, of San Francisco, and we, we kept making it a point a million times to get the point across. Their run game's not scary because they get five yards every time. Their run game scary because, as we saw, McCaffrey makes one guy miss and he has a 45-yard touchdown. Like, that's the element that their run game is just different than everybody else's, but you have to keep a lid on the explosive plays, run or pass. If you don't do that against San Francisco, the teams that don't are the teams that they just boat race. You were there in those conditions. Do you – I mean – and, and I mean, obviously, everything you said about the way Purdy has handled pressure and, and things like that, the numbers back it up and what you watch back it up. But they I mean, it, it didn't always bear out in that game against Green Bay. Do you chalk that up purely to the conditions? Because, I mean, it was it was pretty nasty up there last weekend. I think there was a lot of I think there's a lot of reasons. I think very rarely is it just like one specific thing that you put your finger on. Listen, it was it was not Purdy's cleanest game, right? There was some misreads. There were some balls that you know, we showed just came out of his hand. You can tell he didn't have a great feel of the ball at times. And and the reality was it was pouring. I mean, it, yeah. it might not have looked like it on television. I, I would look on the monitors, and but then when you looked up in the lights and you looked on the field in real time, I mean, it was pouring for. 75% of the game, there were certain pockets where it stopped. But I would say that is definitely a factor. I think Green Bay's defense played really well. I think Green Bay's zone coverages did a nice job matching. I think when Green Bay got in trouble was when they decided to go man man coverage. I think those couple man decisions on third down, the Kittle touchdown and the Kittle third down conversion before the before they scored the McCaffrey touchdown, that – those two plays stick out in my head as being huge difference makers. But I think overall, their front really got after the passer. They did a nice job controlling the, the game up front. And I think they gave San Francisco a little fit. So I, I don't think it was necessarily that Purdy just played bad. I don't think he played his best. I think you got to give credit to Green Bay. But all that being said, in the drive that mattered, when the game was on the line in the fourth quarter, I don't know, there was like when they got the ball, I think there was like four or five minutes to go, I, I, whatever the time was in the fourth quarter. And they were down four. 
And there was no field goal. There was no settle for three. It was, you need to take your team down right now and score a touchdown, or you're going to be knocked out of the playoffs in your first game. And Purdy had his best drive of the game. So I think all that, sometimes all that other stuff goes out the window. How do you perform when it matters? And he did it. He absolutely did. And I think to your point, something that gets lost there is the Niners essentially decided like, we're going to win it or lose it here. I mean, they got the ball with four or five minutes to play and took the clock all the way down to one minute. It's incredibly impressive that in that pressure situation where things are going to go sideways, if you don't get it done on this drive, he he did deliver um, on the other side of this. I actually, I really like the way the lions offense matches up in this game, except for the fact that Jonah Jackson is out. And Frank Ragnow is going to be playing through multiple sprains, which is insane. I don't know how you do that, but it's it's incredible. How how might that affect what the Lions want to do offensively when you don't have, I mean, specifically Ragnow being limited, but also Jackson not even playing in this game? Yeah, I think it's a huge factor. And I think what's what's unique about the San Francisco defensive front is most games you go in saying, okay, how do we protect the tackles? Because on most teams, the edge guys are who kill you. And obviously San Francisco has that with Bosa and Young and, and whatnot. So they have that. But then what's also unique is their depth and their and their strength of their interior rush, which is going to go against the guys that you're mentioning in Detroit that are that are going to be either missing or playing presumably injured. So I, I think that's a that's a huge factor. I do think as long again, as long as the game stays close, their ability to protect their offensive line, their ability to protect the passer with their scheme and their play action game and the versatility of what they want to do with Ben Johnson's offense does take a lot of burden off of the offensive line. They can be, and especially when you have two tackles like they do with Decker and, and Penny Sewell, you can give a little bit more inside. You can have a little bit more compact protection. You don't have to feel like your guards need to really widen out to go help your tackles and give presence. So it all works together. But I will say in a in a close in a close game that's not a runaway where Detroit has to play from behind, their versatility and their balance on offense makes a lot of that protection issues a little bit easier. It's very similar to what we said last week with Green Bay. It's very similar to how San Francisco, they all are kind of operating under the same presumption that if we can play in close games, our balance, our mix of run and pass, your inability to just rush a quarterback in the shotgun 35, 40 times a game slows the pass rush down. It alleviates a lot of the pressure on the offensive line. And I think more and more teams have to understand that and, most do the teams that are playing at this time of the year do and other teams around the league are scratching their heads saying, man, we can't protect the passer. We take a lot of sacks. Well, yeah. Because he's standing in the gun the whole game and defense is just having a track meet to get to the spot. So I think these both teams do a great job with protecting their quarterback and their protectors. And um, to your point with Detroit, I think that's going to be another factor this week. I don't ask you about coaching every single week, but I am interested it seems like there's two very different approaches at work here. Last week, it felt like Kyle Shanahan, I mean, he called that game fairly conservatively, maybe because he knew that he had the better overall team. You know, the sequence at the end of the first half stands out where he was kind of content to just play methodically and move into field goal range. On the other side of this, you got the most aggressive guy there is in Dan Campbell. I'm curious how you think that might play out. Do you, I mean, do you think Kyle Shanahan will keep – a similar approach knowing that this is a better Detroit team and, and obviously 
you never fully know what you're going to get when Dan Campbell's willing to do the things that Detroit has done all season. Yeah, I I think it's a great question. And I think just from covering these two guys, I, I think there's two different answers. I, I think Kyle Shanahan is going to call his game. I think he is very confident in their scheme, in their approach. Obviously, their success speaks for itself over the last you know handful of years. I don't think he's going to allow the threat of another coach or the presumption that another coach is going to play a particular style alter what he's going to do. I don't think the fear of Dan Campbell, he might fake a punt or a field goal or he's going to go for a million fourth downs. Okay, so I have to do it too. I, I don't. I don't think Shanahan's going to get thrown off. Now, back to Dan Campbell. I think if I'm Dan Campbell, in my mind, I'm saying, okay, let's say San Francisco scores high 20s, 30s. It's the best offense in the league. My defense isn't great against the pass. Now, they could come out and be great, right? You, you always say, okay, what's worst case scenario? How many points am I going to have to get in a shootout? And then every red zone stop, every takeaway, every three and out, that number just gets more and more attainable and it's easier for your offense to eclipse it, right? But that's how these guys go into the game. When you go into a game this week, you're saying, okay, Ben Johnson, Dan, we got to score 30. How are we going to score 30? We're not going to just throw the ball a thousand times, right? We're not going to score 30 that way. We're going to run it. We're going to control it. We're going to score 30 because I'm going to go for fourth and goal from the four. We're going to score 30 because I'm going to go for fourth and two from the minus 40. I think Dan's going to find ways to extend possessions and maximize possessions, knowing every field goal is a loss. Every punt or a kick is a loss. Because I have to assume the San Francisco offense at home in good conditions is going to score. It, it's not that he doesn't have trust in his defense. It's that's how he has to build the model of the game. And then the better your defense plays, the easier it is on your offense. But you have to go in thinking worst case scenario. So I think it plays right into what you're saying about Dan Campbell. I think every opportunity he has, he understands the value of ending with seven points every time they have the ball. And without being reckless with play calling, I think they can be a little bit more aggressive in play strategy and kind of gamesmanship. It's ironic because it, it wasn't Dan that created the headlines in the last game. It was Todd Bowles with the decision to go for two points down two possessions. It's kind of as it always does when a coach does something very aggressive in a big spot, it's led to a week's worth of arguments and explanations. I'm curious, like from your perspective as a broadcaster knowing that I mean that that feels like something that could come up whether it's going for it on fourth down in minus territory or if Dan Campbell does have to try to get that two-point conversion late in a game do you give mind to that as you're preparing for this game like you and and Kevin like hey we might have to talk through xx scenario when a coach makes this type of decision with this many people watching yeah, we, we talk about it all the time and we try to learn from other games. We try to learn from other situations that pop up during the week. The the one you just mentioned with Todd Bowles last week, I thought he handled it perfectly. I, I think that, you know, you get that two point conversion. They ended up getting the stop. All of a sudden now, in theory, I know it didn't work out exactly this way for them, but in theory, it works out like how the, the Titans did earlier in the year where now you get the ball down six. And now it's not, hey, touchdown and an extra point. We send this thing to overtime. Let's hope we win the coin toss. It's, I score a touchdown. I got a 98% chance of making this extra point, And we end the game right now. So the old conventional wisdom was extend the game as long as possible. 
those days are over, especially if you're the road underdog, especially if you know the longer the game goes, typically by the end, the better team, the game starts tipping in their favor. I mean, just think of this weekend, right? Just think of the Green Bay, um, San Francisco game. For three quarters, Green Bay outplayed them. But as the game went on and it got to crunch time at the end, the better team did just enough to pull ahead. So if that game ended regulation and tie and went into overtime, that pendulum would continue to shift towards the better team. It's just traditionally how it goes the longer it goes. So the team that's the underdog, you want to end it. So that's the whole theory behind the 14 go for two on the first one. Right. It's, I want to know how many I'm down. And I, I have a better chance if I got to get one two-point conversion to win the game or just one two-point conversion to, in essence, tie the game if I fail on the first one, going one for two is a pretty good, you know, if you call them each 50-50 coin ticks, going one for two, I got a good chance of going one for two. Going one for two gets me a tie. But if I go one for one, I win. Everyone's looking to win in regulation, not prolong the game. That That's an old way of thinking that it's just not supported by by the data. And and I think the, the fact that Todd Bowles figured this out, I think signals your point that, I mean, the, the toothpaste is out of the tube here. I mean, th there just can't be that many yeah. NFL head coaches left other, who don't see that. And one other thing, yeah, and one other thing, the other really popular situation that comes up all the time is like fourth and goal on the two, right? You're going in. In the old days, you know, fourth and goal at the one, I think everyone's like, oh, you can get one yard. But say it's like fourth and goal at the three or the two. You're not close enough to quarterback sneak. You can't just like lunge over. You got to actually win the play to get two, three yards, right? In the old days, you'd kick the field goal. Hey, you always got to come away with points. It gives the defense, the, it gives your opponent such a momentum boost, right? Everyone's so worried about that. Right. But what when they look at this data, the part people don't understand about analytics, they say, okay, if you failed and I gave you the ball on your own two-yard line, I'm on defense. I actually have a higher probability of scoring a touchdown before you do, even though you have the ball. That's the formulas and the and what's being baked into these decisions. So I, everyone says, well, I have the ball. Yeah, but you got to go 98 yards. I can stop you and go 45 yards or get a turnover. Or there's an, I actually have a better opportunity of scoring before you do, which is unheard of in the NFL because you have the ball. That's why teams make these decisions because when you bake out, yes, in that individual moment, you gave up three to try to get seven. But over the next handful of series, the, the fact that you're on the minus two yard line, my odds of scoring and making up for that, instead of getting three on the first possession, if I now get the ball back after a stop and get seven, I've made up for it. That's analytics. It's true. And, and I'm just, I, I just feel confident it's going to come up for y'all this weekend. I, I mean, I think on an even playing field with, with good weather, the Niners are a better team. Like the Niners should win this game. But Dan Campbell's decision-making can change the math there in a lot of situations. Like, I'm not going to be surprised if we see a fake punt. Or maybe you even just, like I said, go for it in your own territory. I can imagine if the Lions are down in, in the second half of this game and you can, you know, it's fourth and three, we can try a 50-yard field goal or just go for it. 
I'm totally on board with going for it in a situation like that, where, like you said, we're, we're not trying to extend this. We got to make something happen if we're going to beat a better team in their stadium. So I'm expecting some aggressive decision-making from Dan Campbell. I can't wait. Should be a, a hell of a game, Greg. I hope you all have a great call, man. As always, I appreciate the time. Thanks, guys. See ya. As someone who covers the entire league for a living, I do my best not to get emotionally invested in anyone, really. I mean, you can find the fun storylines. You can find the cool aspects of pretty much any result. I'd be lying if I said you don't develop a little bit of a soft spot for what the Detroit Lions are doing. It's, it's nothing personal against the 49ers. I love watching the 49ers play. But when you think of the hard times that have faced the Detroit Lions and and how long people that follow that team have been waiting for a moment like this. It's hard not to, to root for them a little bit. Having said all of that, as much of an underdog, fun story as they might be, and as good of a team as they might be, I don't want to give the impression that they're some plucky team that doesn't belong here. They've been one of the most consistently good teams in the league all season long. Having said all of that nice stuff, I think the 49ers are in a different class from most of the NFL and certainly most of the NFC as we've seen throughout the season. I think they have enough talent all over this roster. I think their matchups play to their strengths. I know it didn't look like it against Green Bay, but Brock Purdy actually is tremendously good under pressure. He knows how to hang in there and make throws to beat blitzes, to beat pressure, to get the ball to his playmakers. I don't think the Lions defense is equipped for that. And as I alluded to with Greg Olson, I'm nervous about the Niners front getting push against the Detroit offensive line and is very talented, but also could be very under equipped for this game. Greg mentioned the matchups on the edge, but I think about a guy like Javon Hargrave and what he might be able to do with the losses on the interior of the line. You add all that together. You mention you you throw in the fact that it's a home game where the Niners are especially hard to beat. Usually, I like San Francisco. I do think it'll be an entertaining game. I honestly won't be surprised if it plays out very similarly to the Lions' win over Tampa Bay, in the sense that the writing is on the wall that the Niners are going to win this game. But I do think Detroit gives it a spirited effort all the way to the end. I'll take the Niners to win by a touchdown, give or take a point. An entertaining game, but a decisive 49ers win that gets them back to the Super Bowl for the first time since 2019. Over on the other side of the bracket, the AFC Championship game, a matchup that doesn't need a whole lot of introduction. That's what happens when two former MVPs play against each other for the right to go to the Super Bowl. It's the Kansas City Chiefs, the standard in the NFL, looking to make their fourth Super Bowl in the last five years, a run of dominance we just haven't seen all that often in the NFL. Even knowing the Patriots just finished their run, this is impressive in its own merits. Their sixth straight AFC championship game, the first time they're doing it on the road. Playing host to them, the Baltimore Ravens, one of the most well-run, one of the most efficient franchises in the NFL, which is remarkable when you consider how long they've been doing this. Not long at all. They're the second youngest franchise in the NFL. The league brought football back to Baltimore in 1996. And already in that time span, just 28 years, they've made the playoffs in half the years of their existence. They've won two Super Bowls, playing for a trip to go to their third. Not bad for not even being 30 years old. But they haven't enjoyed this level of success in the Lamar Jackson era. Yes, he's won an MVP. Yes, he's working on number two. 
No trips to the AFC title game since the days of Joe Flacco and no Super Bowl appearances since 2012 would be a crowning achievement for Lamar Jackson. Also for John Harbaugh, reinventing this team, making another Super Bowl a decade after the fact. Yes, the Chiefs have the rings. They have the accolades that make them the standard in the NFL today. The Ravens quietly right there in the mix among most successful franchises in the NFL. And the winner of this game will have plenty of momentum, plenty to be excited about heading in to Super Bowl 58 to preview it all. As I mentioned, my guy Greg Allman joins the show. We're going to talk Ravens Chiefs. We're also going to talk some coaching news down in the NFC South. All right, Greg, you're headed up to Baltimore Saturday night. Ravens Chiefs. The soon-to-be MVP, I feel very comfortable continuing to say that, Lamar Jackson, the reigning MVP, Patrick Mahomes, big game in Baltimore. I love the fact, I've said this already this week too, first AFC championship game in Baltimore since 1971. I just, I, I'm, I'm pumped for the fans there. They get to have the game back in Baltimore. I'm curious from your perspective covering this game, Kansas City, obviously their offense got back on the right track for the first time in really what feels like all season against Buffalo last week, they got Travis Kelsey involved. They scored 27 points at the risk of sounding like a hater. Are we sure the chiefs are back or do we think maybe it was a byproduct of Buffalo being so banged up on defense? Yeah. I mean, I think they had the, probably the, the more difficult win to get in compared to the Texans. I think the Texans were certainly capable of, of beating uh, the Ravens, but uh, you know, Baltimore had a fairly convincing win, and and Buffalo, you know, got in, but it wasn't easy by any means. Not Buffalo, Kansas City got in. Um, injury, some defense, or something that I think limited Buffalo the whole year. I, I still thought it was a game they could win, and and an impressive win for Kansas City to pull it out. Um, are they back? I'm not ready to say that yet. Um, but I mean, this is a game where you think about the two offenses going head to head. They need to have the right game. They need to have, you know, it's probably going to be a 31, 34 point uh, minimum to win this game on Sunday. Like I said, it, it was a game. And look, you you do it, you, you get credit for it, regardless of the circumstances. But Travis Kelsey, his best game in a while, five for 75 and two touchdowns. I do think the Ravens are incredibly equipped to deal with him between all of their different safeties. They got about five of them that can do the job really well. They've obviously got arguably the best linebacker duo in the NFL, Roquan Smith and Patrick Queen. Do you do you think that's where this starts? Is that going to be the focal point for this Ravens defense is taking that safety blanket away and putting it back on these young Chiefs receivers? Totally. I, I think so. I mean, it's one of those where they, they won games where Kelsey was barely uh, contributing, so they can. Uh, but yeah, if you think about the big difference, I mean, these teams, last time these teams faced was 21. And... The big difference is there is no Tyreek Hill. I mean, there is no the drop off in who they have to go to and lean on in the postseason. Besides Cole Kelsey, it is a major drop off. Um, and now it's funny. Now you look at Baltimore, and, and Baltimore has these veteran receivers and Zay Flowers. And and if anything, things have kind of shifted from Lamar not having the weapons to uh, to now you wondering whether Patrick Mahomes has enough uh, ammunition downfield. I think he's you know gotten by with it. But in a game like this, especially on the road, um, it's a big ask. Which also leads to the question of, it, it hasn't always been good, but the running game has come in clutch for the Chiefs at times this season. Isaiah Pacheco, obviously, 
he's going to get over a thousand yards for the season in this game. If I had to guess, is that, is that the answer? And, and I mean, if anybody can put the team on their back, it's Patrick Mahomes. And this is going to be a tall order against this Baltimore defense. But do you have any sense of optimism that Kansas city can find that dimension in the running game to take a little pressure off of him? Well, they can. It's a tough defense to run against for sure. I mean, you look at the, the four games, it's like Ravens and chiefs played four times from 18 to 21 and Patrick Mahomes in those four games is 12 touchdowns, two interceptions, averaging 370 yards a game through the year. And again, that's, that's with Tyreek Hill back then, but um, they know him well that, that, you know, you think about changes that Baltimore has made on defense uh, with Martindale out with McDonald in, I mean, there's things they've done to specifically try and upgrade their defense from a personnel standpoint, from a coaching standpoint, these are the games that you do that for. This is where you, reinforce yourself as the best defense in the NFL uh, by taking care of an offense like this and moving on in the playoffs. On the flip side of this, I mean, Baltimore had to be highly intrigued watching Josh Allen and the Bills run the ball the way they did in Buffalo the other day. I know the Chiefs got the win, uh, but but a very impressive day on the ground from Buffalo. That seems like it would play pretty well to Baltimore's strengths to me. How do you see that? Because this Chiefs run defense can be a liability. You add Lamar Jackson into the mix and what they do running the ball, that seems like it could spell trouble in this matchup. Absolutely. This is the number one run offense in the NFL. 156 yards a game on the ground. Um, you look in the last five years, the Chiefs defense, the, the number two games, top two games given up by quarterbacks rushing against them are both Lamar Jackson. It's 107 yards and 80 yards. Uh, I think there's one other game, maybe an Easton stick week 18 kind of mean nothing game is the only other one over 60 yards. So nobody has run against this Chiefs defense better than Lamar Jackson. Um, I think they've changed their offense this year to run him less, to throw more. Um, I was writing something today on, on big play passing. I mean, you go back one year ago, Chiefs are number one in the NFL in pass plays of 20 yards or more. Ravens are second to last in the NFL. One had 40 more than the other. And this year they have the same amount of pass plays, 20 yards or more. The, the Chiefs have dropped down. The Ravens have moved up. And now they're on equal footing there, which says a lot about them adding to the the deep pass game that Baltimore maybe hasn't had in past years. That is, it's the funny thing to me about this is, yeah, I mean, and Lamar Jackson hasn't been, obviously he's going to run the ball and he's very good at it. But over the course of the season, that it hasn't been his MO the way that you expect knowing his athleticism. Then he goes for a hundred against Houston last week. And I do, I wonder how much Todd Monken, uh, Baltimore uh, offensive coordinator changes his approach here because I do think Kansas city's better equipped to deal with the explosive passing game. Legereus Sneed, one of the more underrated corners in the NFL, Trent McDuffie, the the young nickelback, they have Justin Reed, they've got safeties and DBs that can at least hope to limit that. Whereas, you know, maybe this is a day where Baltimore gets back to the old school where Lamar Jackson is carrying the ball a little bit more. They are leaning on that a little more often than we're used to. Yeah, it would go against kind of the curve of what this year has been. I mean, Lamar Jackson is rushing yards per game, lowest since his rookie year, I think. Uh, passing yards. He set career highs for passing yards, for yards per attempt, for completion percentage. He, he's definitely taken a step up as a passer. You think about the people they added, not only Zay Flowers with the number one draft pick, but free agents like Odell Beckham, like Nelson Aguilar. 
Uh, Bateman's still in there. You know, they've done this this year without Mark Andrews for seven games. I think likely stepped up and played really well in his absence. The idea of having both of them uh, as a really strong one-two punch, I think they're the only team in the NFL that had two touch, two tight ends that caught five touchdowns or more. So now there's a depth to this passing game as well. But yeah, you're right. If it's worked in the past against this defense, uh, I'm not saying, you know, 15 design runs, but I think it would they would do well early in the game to remind Kansas City how dangerous he is in the open field. I'm glad you brought up Mark Andrews as well. At at the time of this recording, we'll see what happens, but it does look like he's got a shot to play his first game since that Thursday night injury halfway through the season. You already ta- uh, touched on it, but having Isaiah Likely and Mark Andrews available for this game, again, this seems like a situation that could play into Baltimore's favor where you don't have to potentially test the strength of this Kansas city defense the way that you might. And and maybe we see Baltimore get a lot of its production over the middle of the field. Oh yeah. I mean, you can run at a 12 personnel. If you have the two of them, I think your red zone offense is almost ideal to have those two again with flowers and Odell line up as your two receivers. Um, they should be able to do well in the red zone with that as at their, at their disposal. Um, it's not going to be Mark Andrews at full strength. It's going to be Mark Andrews hasn't played in two months and is coming off of a, a fracture and an ankle sprain and all those kind of things. So I think you have to be careful how you use him. But if you use him in the red zone, if you find 20 plays for him in this first game back, he can be a difference maker. If it's just a single red zone touchdown catch uh, or, or the attention that the defense gives him that opens up a receiver to be one-on-one in the end zone, uh, that's the edge you need in the playoffs right now. I feel bad, like going through the the topics that I prepared to cover for this game. It sounds as I'm talking to you, like I'm not giving the Chiefs a chance. Like, I mean, on paper, Baltimore does look to have the edge in just about every facet of this. It's worth mentioning too. Kansas City uh, guard Joe Tooney dealing with a pec injury. He might not be able to play. That's another problem for the Chiefs to deal with. Justin Matabike having a wonderful season at defensive tackle for Baltimore. But the Chiefs did just go on the road and do this against a a comparably good team, a a white-hot Bills team. So if they're going to do this, and, and I do think they can, what do you think it looks like? What do you think they need to do to get to get past Baltimore? Yeah, I mean, it's a little bit like Tom, what Tom Brady had. It seemed like for so many years, you know, Brady's path to the Super Bowl was home games and nothing but Foxborough. Um, and the exception might be, I, I guess, maybe the COVID year. He had three road games, but those aren't even really full stadiums. So, so much of what Patrick Mahomes has done to get to the Super Bowl, to put them in position to win championships, is, is winning on their home field. And and like you said, going into Buffalo in those conditions in the divisional round is certainly one thing. Um, you don't think about Baltimore as being as hostile a place, maybe, um, but it's definitely something they have to overcome. Um, it, it's going to need to be a game on both sides of the ball. I, I think we've forgotten a little bit about Spags and what he can do, uh, but he has to have a game where he steps up. Um, this is a game where, you know, Lamar is, again, we talk about him not being the MVP yet. He's probably the MVP of this league. And it's something where he's solidified that with his play in the second half of the season. So, um, just to contain him, just to hold him to three total touchdowns or 80 on the ground and 200 in the air is an accomplishment. And I mean, luckily they have, again, they have a Patrick Mahomes offense. So you're, you're equipped to, to go score for score with just about anybody you go up against. But I do think the personnel around the quarterbacks probably uh, with the exception of Kelsey 
is an advantage for Baltimore. And that's something they need to, you know, overcome, but it's something they certainly can. I'm intrigued in that the assistants here, okay, uh, you have Baltimore with McDonald and Munkin, both coveted as head coaches, potentially getting what few jobs are left in the NFL right now. And you don't have that with Spags and you don't have that on the Kansas City side of things. So I'm intrigued in that it, it's kind of like everybody else is, is lost under Andy Reid and doesn't have the same uh, cachet as as hot assistants go right now. But it's a chance for for those guys, especially Spags, to show he's still got it. How how that up? I've been thinking about it recently. How good must it feel in Kansas City to know? I mean, Steve Spagnuolo is an amazing coach, but it seems like he's happy where he is. You know, he's done the head coaching thing. He's 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 done everything you can do, and it seems like he's just perfectly happy coaching this Kansas City defense. And that's got to be such a load off of Andy Reid's mind and Brett Veach, the general manager's mind, to just know, like, Spags is going to be here to coach this up. Because, yeah, it doesn't seem like there's any noise about him not being there in the future. I just think that is, that's got to be such just a, a, a peace of mind in Kansas City. Right, absolutely. And it, it's it's one of those where, I mean, I've always felt like a head coach, it's so crucial to have a strong weak side coordinator. Whatever side of the ball your background is in, uh, the opposite side, you want to be able to have like a 1A, like a, a head coach on defense that you trust to handle that side of the ball. And Andy Reid doesn't have to cross the party line and, and mess with the defense very much at all because of that. I remember doing late in the year, like November, doing like a, a top 10 assistants and and who the hot assistants are going to be. And I didn't have Spags on that list. And it was first year in the year, like, wow, this, this defense, you know, you'd think just as they borrow from the offense of this and you see interest in his assistance that way you don't see that on the defensive side I, I think it's because Spags has been a head coach before it didn't go well uh, he's older where there's not an upside to hiring him but like you said if you can find somebody who's a great coordinator and content in that for years at a time you just get to run him parallel to what Andy Reid's done on offense and so many good assistants on that side of the ball he held Josh Allen without a 20-yard gain in Buffalo last week so yeah to your point He's going to have something dialed up for Lamar. Maybe a slightly better performance against the run would be my suggestion here if they're going to pull this off. I can't wait. Looking forward to it. We will definitely catch up with you after the game. Before we let you go, though, this is it's very fortuitous. Not only are you covering Chiefs Ravens for us, you are also our NFC South writer. And literally as we're logging on to do this interview, the Carolina Panthers hire away Tampa Bay offensive coordinator Dave Canales to be their new head coach. So a nice little NFC South two for one in your neck of the woods. Let's right? let's start yeah. with Carolina's aspect of this. It makes a ton of sense when you look at Canales's track record, why a team with a young quarterback might hire him. But but walk me through that and the thought process of, of what Carolina wants from Dave Canales. Yeah, if you if you think about the priority in this hire being somebody that can develop and cultivate Bryce Young in a way that Frank Reich was not able to do this first year, it, it makes sense that they'd like Dave Canales and that his last two years are both very successful reclamation project projects. Um, you start with him being the quarterback's coach for Geno Smith, kind of leading the Seahawks into the playoffs in the post-Russell Wilson era, uh, Pro Bowl-level play there, got him a big contract. And then he comes to Tampa. He's a first-time coordinator, a first-time play caller. And you see it again. You see Baker Mayfield have arguably the best year of his career uh, career highs in yards and passing touchdowns, wins a division title here, wins a playoff game. Um, and even though he only has one year 
as a coordinator, as a play caller. He's a head coach now. Uh, and I think a big part of that is him taking quarterbacks and making them much better in a short amount of time. It's got to be. I mean, I, I think you have to be excited if you're a Panthers fan because of the track record that you just mentioned. And it's it's all going to hinge on getting something out of Bryce Young. Obviously, I'm fascinated to see how Canales does with the resources available there. Obviously, no first round pick for Carolina. So I don't know if the success is going to come right away like it has it, these last two years for Dave Canales. But I'm interested to see that on the Tampa Bay side of this. It it seems like it kind of upsets the apple cart for the Buccaneers. Like it was easy to imagine a world where you run it back, you re-sign Baker Mayfield, you get Mike Evans back. Do you think losing Canales has a chance to to change that plan? And and what might Todd Bowles do to replace uh, to to fill his offensive coordinator vacancy? Yeah, it, it definitely has the potential to be a, a domino kind of thing where. As much as I think Baker Mayfield wants to be back in Tampa, I think part of why things worked for him was was finding a coordinator, finding a scheme that really played to his strengths, protected his weaknesses. And he won't know that he'll have that with whoever they bring in here. Um, I do think the Bucks will probably go outside. There's actually a ton of offensive coordinators that are available, whether by their own firing or their head coach being fired. Uh, Thomas Brown in Carolina is a guy who they interviewed twice last year. He ended up picking Carolina. So he could be like the coordinator to be named in this whole uh, Canales deal. Um, there's guys like Alex Van Pelt, who was a coordinator in Cleveland, was there for Baker in his best years in 20 and 21 in Cleveland with the Browns as part of a playoff team. Um, you know, again, there's guys like the Eagles and Brian Johnson, the Chargers and Kellen Moore. There's there's coaches that you probably didn't expect to be available this late in the process as offensive coordinators that Bowles does not have ties with, that Baker Mayfield doesn't necessarily have ties with, but they're probably stronger resumes than what Dave Canales had here coming a year ago. I think it's an easier job to fill. Uh, a year ago, they had no cap space. It's just post-Brady. You don't know who the quarterback is. Here, I think they can at least see if you do this and we can get Baker back, you'll have this. I think those kind of things might help Mike Evans come back. But if they don't get it right... They could lose Baker, they could lose Mike Evans, and then your offensive identity is kind of re restarting from scratch almost. I wonder if Panthers owner David Tepper thought about this of like, yeah, I like Dave Canales, but also we could really cause some chaos for our division rivals right. down there. Just nice little, nice little bonus to go along with the hire. It's going to be fascinating to see what happens there. Greg, thank you for your expertise on, on a variety of different levels. Uh, enjoy the scene in Baltimore, my man, and we'll catch up with you after the game. Thanks, Dave. We'll do it again soon. Thank you. Now comes my least favorite part of the show, and that's the part where I pick against the Kansas City Chiefs. I'm dreading it because this is what they do. They lure you into a false sense of security, and then they remind you that they have the best player on planet Earth. His name's Patrick Mahomes. He's a Kansas City Chief. They're never out of a game if he's there. They're 4-1 and one in their last five games as an underdog, including last week when they went to Buffalo and beat the Bills, it would be so unsurprising if I'm here on Monday apologizing to the Chiefs for doubting them. But at the same time, you go off of what you've seen this season, and that is, even with Superman, Patrick Mahomes, under center, they have struggled at times. I know they refound their mojo against Buffalo, but the season-long resume of work says that it's a recurring issue and against the best defense in the NFL, I expect it to be a slog. The Ravens are equipped to deal with everything the Chiefs throw at them, whether it's 
limiting the expo- explosive passing plays, which they've been able to do all season long, whether it's having the personnel to keep Patrick Mahomes from extending plays, from picking up yards with his feet, having two great linebackers that can rush the passer, as well as, what, five capable safeties, can do a hell of a lot to limit those types of plays. I think they can bracket Travis Kelsey, make his life much harder than it was in Buffalo. And with all of that going, sure, the Chiefs are going to have success because they do have Patrick Mahomes, but I think the Ravens can limit them to a low enough point total that Lamar Jackson and company can top it. We talked with Greg about the Ravens' abilities on the ground in this game. I would expect it's going to be another banner day in the rushing attack, and there will be just enough plays in the passing game. I will take the Ravens. I think it's going to be a thrilling game, just like Chiefs-Bills a week ago in terms of the drama, in terms of the high-level quarterback play. But the Ravens are at home. The Ravens have been the most complete team in the NFL all season long, and I will take them to get to the Super Bowl in a 24-20 to type of win, a thriller. Lamar Jackson gets to his first Super Bowl. If I'm wrong, again, I would be the least surprised person on planet Earth. That is the power of Patrick Mahomes. But I will roll with the Ravens, which means I am officially picking a rematch in the Super Bowl, Baltimore-San Francisco. Not just a rematch of Super Bowl forty-seven where the Ravens beat the 49ers in New Orleans a decade ago. Also a rematch from this year. These teams met on Christmas night just a month and a half ago. The Ravens got the better of the Niners 33-19 to in Santa Clara. It was a lot more lopsided than the final score made it look. We will see. If I'm right, can the Niners get them back in the Super Bowl? That's what I'm predicting. One seed versus one seed. They've been the two best teams in the league all season long. I think it would be entirely fitting if that is the final game of the season. Of course, my playoff picks admittedly haven't been wonderful this year. We'll see if I fare any better. Please enjoy the conference championship games. As always, we will be back on Monday to break it all down. Whether I'm right or wrong, we'll take you through it. We'll have all hands on deck for both games in Santa Clara. Not only are we going to catch up with Greg Olson and Kevin Burkhart from Niners Lions, but our friend Carmen Vitale is also there cover the nfc championship game we'll catch up with both of them over on the other side like we said greg allman will be in baltimore for ravens chiefs plenty of content coming your way monday as we prepare for super bowl 58 we will finally know who's playing we'll see you then please as always go find us on spotify check in on apple podcasts wherever you get your podcasts your nfl news We got so much good content coming for you in the week off before the Super Bowl, as well as Super Bowl week, obviously. Cannot wait for that. Cannot wait for the game Sunday. Hope y'all enjoy. I'll catch up with you Monday.